0: If you'll turn there, we're going to continue our study through the book of Daniel. I'm going to start reading at verse 20. We will go through the end of the chapter, verse 27. We're going to be looking at the 70 weeks of Daniel, which is an absolutely amazing prophecy. So this morning, you might have to put your thinking caps on just a little bit as we go through this. And uh, I think you'll find it to be very encouraging as we study God's Word. This is a good time to remember to turn our ringers off our phones... And let's go to the Lord in prayer. So, Father, we do come, and we ask that you would just bless this time in the study of your word. And, Lord, as we look at this most amazing prophecy, that that it's for us today. There's something here for us that we can take from and learn and be blessed by. And, Lord, we know your word is true. And Daniel, as he writes this down, this prophecy given by the angel Gabriel, That Lord, that we know that the 70th week will come to pass, just as the first 69 weeks have. I pray that we would be attentive. Help us to understand, to grasp this. And Lord, to be excited that the coming of the Lord is soon. And Lord, indeed, the exhortation given to us to be watching, to be waiting, to occupy till you come. So bless this time in the study of your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So as we look at this prophecy, which is called the 70 weeks of Daniel, for some of you, you're familiar with this prophecy because we've looked at it in our years of going through the scriptures here at Calvary Chapel. So it may be familiar to you, but for some of you, this may be um, brand new. And I think that we can look at this to where we will have understanding and see that This is one of the most important and amazing prophecies that we have in all of the Bible. So this portion is not only speaking about 70 weeks concerning your people, Daniel, that is Israel, the Jewish people, and Jerusalem, but also the 70th week, which is yet to be fulfilled. Now keep in mind that the Jews measured things in regards to a seven-year period, which was called a week. So when we read that term here, we know that it's referring to a seven-year period. The Romans measured time in decades, which we use today. We know that it speaks of a 10-year period. So 70 decades would be a 700-year period, compared to 70 weeks, which would be 490-year period. Just so that we're clear on this, what we're reading here this morning. Now, Daniel was familiar with such terms in periods of time of 490 years. You might recall that in the beginning of the chapter that he's praying. He knows that the 70 years of captivity are just about over, as the prophet Jeremiah had said. And the reason that they were in captivity for 70 years is because the scriptures declare to us that when the children of Israel came into the promised land, they came in for 490 years they did not keep the, the Sabbath uh, year to rest the land, which they were to do every seven years. So 70 Sabbaths were there to, to, for the land to rest. They ignored it. God says, I'm going to get those 70 years back. You're going to go off into captivity because of your disobedience, because of your idol worship, because you've forsaken me. And, and so that's why the length of time is 70 years of captivity from 605 B.C. to 536 B.C. That's what we've been looking at is Daniel was taken in the first wave of, of deportation. The young men of Judah that were taken away, Daniel taken away at the age of 14, 15 years of age. And he was in Babylon for the whole time of uh, the captivity. So Daniel is no stranger to a week of days or a week of years. Another thing to mention as we look at this is every bit of this prophecy is important and given to us to understand it. Verse 22, we will read, I've come to give you skill and to understand. Verse 23, understand the vision. Verse 25, know therefore and understand. So that's reiterated here. And we are to understand this prophecy is given to us. It wasn't just for Daniel. And as we read this, I believe that we can understand it and the significance of it. So I want to read this to you. And remember that in, as we open up chapter 9, that Daniel had set himself to pray. He knows that the 70 years of captivity are just about over that he has read the prophecies of Jeremiah. He's praying for the nation. He's confessing the sins of the nation. He's praying for revival. And as we read in verse 20, let's pick it up in chapter 9 of Daniel. Now, while I was speaking, praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplications before the Lord, my God, for the holy mountain of my God, Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, Gabriel's an angel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening uh, offering. So Daniel's praying. He set himself to pray. He is interrupted by the angel Gabriel. Gabriel, as we've discussed, we've already seen him mentioned here in the book of Daniel, that he seems to be associated with announcements concerning the coming of Messiah. And we will see that this does pertain to the coming of Messiah and Jesus' first coming. And Gabriel says, Daniel, I've come to tell you not about 70 years, but about 70 weeks or heptads if you've got an old King James. And that's 70 periods of seven years. One commentator said, and I agree with him, that this is God's calendar for Israel. Daniel, I've come to give understanding. Now, as we go through this, I've had even recently people that will email me or they'll call me on the radio or they'll send me a long paper through in the mail about what they think is the 70 weeks of Daniel, what it really means and the calculations that they have come up with. And they'll come up with something, and I appreciate their study of the Scriptures but oftentimes it contains something which is so complicated, I don't understand it. Um, all these different things that they, they try to, to bring into what this prophecy says and given an explanation. I think that we can read this, we can consider the matter, and we can understand the vision. I think that we can grasp this and, and understand it uh, as we read it and go through it very carefully. So as we read in, in verse 22, let's take a look at it, that he informed me and talked with me and said, Daniel, I have come now for to give you skill and understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I've come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. So here's the prophecy. Seventy weeks, verse 24, are determined for your people and for your holy city. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand, verse 25, that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince There shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people, the prince who is to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with the flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week." But in the middle of the week, that's three and a half years, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So as we look at this, 70 weeks, verse 24, are determined for your people, Daniel, and for your holy city. Now, who is Daniel's people? Well, it's the Jews, isn't it? That's pretty obvious. And holy city of Daniel, the only holy city that God declares, is Jerusalem. Now, keep that in mind that as Daniel is receiving this prophecy that Jerusalem laid in rubble, 605 B.C., here comes Nebuchadnezzar. He takes Daniel and his, his, his friends away captive. and and to be used in the affairs of the Babylonian government, used as eunuchs. We read that in chapter 1. There's another wave of, of captives taken away from Judah in 597 B.C. That's where most of the people of the land were taken, and Ezekiel was taken. And many of the treasuries of the Lord's house was taken at that time as well, and also in the first deportation. The third time Nebuchadnezzar comes into Jerusalem is 586 B.C. He levels Jerusalem. Uh, Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, had rebelled against uh, Nebuchadnezzar. He came in, he destroyed Jerusalem, he destroyed the magnificent temple which Solomon had built. So keep that in mind as we go through this, that Jerusalem laid in rubble. Uh, Solomon's temple uh, was destroyed. Uh, And as we look at this, 70 weeks are determined for your people, Daniel, for your holy city. And again, there are those who have come along and said, well, this applies to the church. This is not speaking about the church. It isn't speaking about the church at all. Have you noticed, those of you who have been going through Daniel with us, that the church is hidden here in the book of Daniel? We see that very clearly in chapter 2 and and chapter 7. The church age is hidden. That the empires that will come on the scene from the time of Daniel in the 6th century B.C. writing this and clear up to the second coming of Jesus Christ, the empires that will come on the scene, that is Babylon. Uh, the Medo-Persian the grecian empire led by alexander the great and then rome would come on the scene and be in power at the time that jesus ministry takes place his death burial and resurrection and then there's a gap of time that's the church age and then we saw remember the feet with iron mingled with clay and the ten toes and the, the ten horns on the fourth beast and a little horn coming up amongst them is speaking of a new roman empire a revived roman empire in the last days, because chapter 2 declares that in the days of the ten horns, ten toes, which are ten kings, the kingdom of God is going to be established. So Daniel, the church age is hidden here in the book of Daniel. This is not referring to the church. This is Daniel's people, the Jews, and Jerusalem, the holy city of Jerusalem. Um, It is not speaking of Rome. It is not The holy city, Salt Lake City, like the Mormons believe is God's holy city. It is Jerusalem. And what will be accomplished during these 70 weeks, number one, we read in verse 24, to finish the transgression. Speaking of the end of man's rebellion against God, when God's kingdom is established. Number two, to make an end to sin. It means to seal up or to restrain sin. Again, looking to a a new redeemed world. Thirdly, to make reconciliation for iniquity, which was accomplished at the cross. Fourthly, to bring an Everlasting righteousness, which many believe it speaks of Jesus establishing his kingdom. Number five, to seal up vision and prophecy. Speaking of the ending and fulfillment of prophecy, the conclusion of man's kingdom and culminating of the reign of Christ. And then number six, to anoint the most holy, which is translated literally the most holy place. Some believe that it's not just speaking about Jesus personally, but the temple that will be built in the millennium reign you read about it in the book of Ezekiel if you read those chapters 40 through 48 it speaks of the millennial temple and Jesus ruling and reigning from there that his glory is going to fill that temple it's going to be a magnificent temple and not only fill that temple but Isaiah declares that when Jesus comes and establishes the kingdom and he rules and reigns from Jerusalem from that temple millennium temple that the glory of the Lord and the righteousness of the Lord will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. So that's what's being spoken of here, what's going to be accomplished during this time. Um, So uh, as we look at this, again, um, that Gabriel is saying that each one of these things are going to be accomplished in the period of 70 weeks. It really is amazing what Gabriel is saying. So let's look at the prophecy specifically how it is divided up. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks, seven periods of seven years, that's 49 years, and 62 weeks, or 62 periods of seven years, that's 434 years. The street shall be built again and a wall even in troublesome time. Listen, I I think that you'll understand this. When the command is given, Gabriel says, to rebuild and restore Jerusalem, it'll be 69 weeks or 483 years. That's the seven weeks plus the 62 weeks or 69 periods of seven years. First of all, why is it divided up? Because the first 49 years is speaking of how long it took to rebuild Jerusalem. So when did the command to rebuild and restore Jerusalem come? When that command comes, there's going to be 483 years to coming a Messiah, the prince. Absolutely remarkable. So when was that command given? We look at scripture, you read the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra deals when the captivity is over and they begin to come back into the land. And in chapter 1, Cyrus of the Medes and the Persians, he gives the command that you guys can go back now and you can rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. We see that they would go back. That's in 536 B.C. The 70 years of captivity are over. Uh, That began in 605 B.C. So Rebobel, as you read Ezra, the civil leader, and Joshua the high priest, they bring just under 50,000 people Back to Jerusalem, they push away the, the rubble, they build the, the altar, and then they lay the foundation of the temple at that time. There are those who say, well, you know, the timetable, 483 years, begins at 536 BC. Uh, that's when the command to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, but that was not the command, that was not the decree. It was to rebuild the temple. In Ezra chapter six, a second decree was given to Ezra to rebuild the temple in 517 BC. You said that was already given. So what happened is many of you who have studied the Old Testament that they laid the foundation of that second temple, and then the work stopped. They were discouraged. You know, they um, thought this is too hard. Opposition came against them. The work of building the temple stopped for years. Haggai, as you read that Old Testament prophet his book short little book uh, at the end of the old testament he comes on the scene and he says listen it's time to get back about 517 bc it's time to get back to to building the temple you guys are all building your panel houses you're you're doing your own thing while the work of the lord has stopped and the theme of haggai and i love this is consider your ways consider your ways and I just want to stop for a minute, and I want us to think about that and to consider that. You know, in our lives, we can get weighed down with cares of life, and we get busy. And this is a busy time of the year. School starting. There's all kinds of things to be done. And we're trying to end summer, you know, plans and vacations. There's, there's a lot of things going on in our work, in our business, and raising kids, and taking care of family. There's all kinds of things that can really begin to draw us away from the Lord. And that's what was happening to the children of Israel. And here comes Haggai, and he says, listen, consider your ways. There's the work of the Lord that needs to be done. It needs to be a priority. The, the temple needs to be built. And there's a temple being built today. You say, what do you mean a temple being built? There's a living temple that's being built today. Peter says that you and I are living stones being fit together into this holy habitation. It's greater than the first temple or the second temple. It's a living temple. There are are people out there, they don't know Jesus. There are people out there, they have no hope. And we have the message of hope the hope for the world, and that is Jesus Christ. He loves you, and he died for you, and he wants to save you. Consider your ways, because we can get so distracted and pulled away and weighed down with the cares of life, with all the busyness of life, when there's a temple to be built. So that decree was given, the second decree we see in Ezra. Then another one was given in chapter 7 in 458 B.C., Artaxerxes made a decree given Ezra permission and supplies to restore the temple services. So I'm not telling you of this to bore you with a lot of biblical history, but these three decrees focused not on Jerusalem. They focused on the temple in Jerusalem. So was there a decree made to rebuild and restore Jerusalem? I believe we do see that in Nehemiah chapter 2. Now, I'm going to read it to you. Many of you are familiar with the book of Nehemiah but I think that you'll find this to be very fascinating Nehemiah he was the cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes the cupbearer had a lot of responsibility he was to make sure the king was safe that the food was prepared no one you know because people would try to you know poison the king through wine or through food he had a great responsibility Nehemiah is before the king he, he gets word from some of the brethren that were visiting from Jerusalem. I'll read it to you in Nehemiah chapter 1. That Hananiah, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and the gates are burned with fire. So Nehemiah hears that. He says that Jerusalem, which he had never been to, is, is laying in rubble. There's no wall around it. The streets aren't built. So he's grieved. He sets himself to pray and fast for four months. Chapter 2 of Nehemiah. I'll read a couple of verses. That it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad since you're not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. Nehemiah, he was a strong individual. You read that as you go through the book of Nehemiah. But at this time, he's afraid in front of the king because he looks sad. And the reason was, is because if you look sad in front of the king, he's thinking, You're up to something. You know, you're feeling the pressure. You didn't do that before the king because he could put you to death if he thought that you're conspiring against him or anything like that. But Nehemiah was so respected by the king, the king says, what's going on? And he says to the king, may the king live forever. This is Nehemiah. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tomb, lies in waste and its gates are burned with fire? And so he would say to the king, If it pleases you, if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tomb, that, listen, that I may rebuild it. So Nehemiah, here at this time, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, in the month of Nisan, is asking the king, can I go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city? It's laying in ruins. It's, you know, there's rubble all around. And when you look at that, the month in the psalm, when no specific day of the month is given, it is to be the first day of the month. Secular historians, listen, stay with me. We'll put that date on March 14, 445 B.C. Nehemiah chapter 2, when the decree came out to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. So we do a little bit of math. We take 360 days, was the Jewish calendar, times 483 years. That's 173,880 days. I think the most accepted work on this was done by a man named Sir Robert Anderson. He was the head of the Scotland Yard for a number of years. He was knighted by the royalty in England because he was a great scholar, a great theologian, a great investigator. Now, you're not knighted unless... You've done some incredible things, and you're really smart. He wrote a book, maybe you've heard of it, called The Coming Prince. And he gives these calculations with the help of the British Royal Observatory. So we're told to understand, right, to consider the prophecy. And verse 25, when the command is given to rebuild and restore Jerusalem, shall be 69 periods of seven years until coming the Messiah, the Prince. That's a remarkable prophecy. 483 years. 483 years. 173,880 days. So you do the calculations from March 14, 445 B.C. You do the math. You count 173,880 days. And you come to, listen, April 6, 32 A.D. What happened on April 6, 32 A.D.? Jesus told two of his disciples as he's on the Mount of Olives, go to the village next to you. And you will find a a colt that's tied up. Loose it and bring him to me. And Jesus would sit on that colt as he made his way down the Mount of Olives and across the Kidron Valley and into the city of Jerusalem. Matthew's gospel tells us the whole city was moved. We know from the gospel accounts of the triumphal entry that a great multitude came up From Jericho following Jesus, people came out of the city. The city had never seen anything like it before. They're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save. And it was the first accepted public worship of himself that he received as we have it in the scriptures and in Luke's account of the triumphal entry, as the people are cheering, waving the palm branches, and ascribing to him the title of Messiah, according to Psalm 118, some of the religious leaders said to Jesus, tell your disciples to be quiet, because they knew that they were ascribing to him Messiah. Rebuke them, this is blasphemy. And what was Jesus' response? His response is, if they should be quiet, the very rocks are going to cry out. Why? Because it was the fulfillment of this amazing prophecy. And then as geez, you know, the people are cheering, the religious leaders are complaining, in that triumphal entry in Luke's account, very interesting, I'll read it to you, chapter 19, verse 41, that Jesus is crying. He's weeping over the city of Jerusalem. As he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. And he's saying, if you had known even you, listen, especially this your day, the things that makes for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not know this your day. You did not know the day of your visitation. Jesus held them accountable to know the prophetic word. Jesus had rebuked the religious leaders, saying, you guys can discern the weather, but you cannot discern the coming of the Son of Man. In a few months, we'll be in holiday season, Christmas season. And we all are familiar with Matthew chapter 2, when the, the Magi from the east came Following the star of Bethlehem, the star of Jesus, and they come into Israel, and Herod the Great, who was a very paranoid man, wants to know, why are these guys here? So he wants to see them. We are here to worship the new king of, of Israel. And Herod was so upset, he calls for the religious leaders. Remember that? And he says, where's this Messiah of yours supposed to be born? Well, according to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, he's going to be born right down the street, a few miles from here, right there in Bethlehem. But they didn't make any effort to go and see and check it out. They knew the scriptures, but they didn't apply it in their lives. They didn't say, hey, you know, maybe we should go check out this star. We should go check out and see what's going on. And there are those that, as it comes to the second coming of Jesus Christ, they can know the scriptures. It's an academic exercise, but we're to apply it in our lives, to know that truly that he is coming, to be watching, to be waiting. We don't know the day or the hour of the coming of the Lord. But as the disciples came to Jesus and said, Tell us, you know, what are the signs of the end, and what are the, uh, the signs of your coming? Jesus told them we know that there are certain events that are taking place that point to the soon return of Jesus Christ. So how do we respond to that? Is it, yeah, yeah, the Lord's going to come back. You know, yeah, they keep saying that. Even Peter would write, there be scoffers in the last days. Hebrews, the one who shall come will come, and he will tarry no longer. I think one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture is given to us there in Jeremiah. When he saw the destruction of Jerusalem, he said, summer's over, the harvest is in, and we're not saved. There's going to be a harvest, folks. So what does it mean to us as we go through this? How does it touch our hearts and we apply it? Is it just a mathematical formula that we're looking at? Or is there something more? And I believe that you know that there is. Jesus says to us, in the days in which we are in, to be wise and watch and be faithful. Messiah coming on the day, 483 years after the decree was given to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. But it's not 69 weeks. There's 70 weeks. That are determined for your people, Daniel, for your holy city, quickly. Verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. This is an amazing prophecy, speaking of Jesus' crucifixion. After the 62 weeks, that includes the seven weeks, and in the 62 weeks, Messiah is cut off. And the people of the prince, this is important, who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Jesus telling them in Luke chapter 21 that they're going to be destroyed, Jerusalem not one stone will be upon another titus comes in in 70 ad in the roman legions they surround jerusalem they finally break through they they destroy jerusalem they destroy the second temple jesus said in olive discourse not one stone will be upon another speaking of the temple that's why the disciples came and they asked them when is this going to be because they equated the the destruction of the temple to the end of the world the temple was magnificent when we go to Israel, we look at the Cheeseman Valley. They've excavated it right next to the Temple Mountain. You can see the stones that they've actually tossed over. Absolutely amazing. You've seen prophecy fulfilled right before your very eyes. The stones as the rubble was there, and, and, and not one stone was left upon another. At that time in 70 AD, over a million Jews were killed, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian. Over 100,000 taken captive. And we know that as Jesus would say in the Olivet Discourse, that you're going to be taken away by the edge of the sword and be led away captive to all the nations. And Jerusalem shall be trampled by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. We are told in Scripture, not only would they return from one captivity, the Babylonian captivity, but another captivity. Being out of the homeland for 2,000 years. From 70 A.D. till 1948, all of a sudden, can a nation be born again? in one day, Isaiah says, yes. Then all of a sudden, the United Nations declare that Israel is a nation. Ben-Gurion declares independence. And a nation is born in their original homeland after 2,000 years unheard of in human history, just as the Bible said would happen. And Amos says when they come back into the land, that they're not going to be plucked out again. It's a study for another time. But it is the super sign that we're in the last days. That many prophecies concerning the coming of Christ cannot happen unless Israel's back in the land. They are a nation once again inhabiting the ancient cities, planting the land again, and we see that very clearly. So as we look at this, we see that... The people who destroyed Jerusalem 70 A.D. is who? Rome. The Romans and of the prince who is to come, this future prince who is to come, he comes out of Rome. Chapter 2, chapter 7 of Daniel speaks of this new revived Roman Empire. The ten kings, you know, the ten toes. And the prince that is to come, you can underline that, is another title for the Antichrist. He's called the little horn of chapter 7. He comes on the scene from this revived Roman Empire in the latter days. Now, keep in mind that 70 weeks are determined for your people. Daniel, we've seen 69 weeks being fulfilled, so there's still a one-week period, right, where the emphasis is on Israel to fulfill its consummation of the nation. And that's what verse 27 speaks of. As Back to Daniel, let me read it to you once again. In Daniel chapter 7 that this prince who is to come, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Listen, the prince who is to come will confirm, or in the Hebrew it literally means, will make a strong covenant with many, a reference to Israel for one week. That one week is described to us in the book of Revelation, that seven-year period in chapters 6 through 19. It's called the tribulation period. The tribulation period begins with the Antichrist making a covenant with Israel. Will you remember that? Sometimes people say, oh, you know, the the tribulation period begins with the rapture of the church. No, the rapture is before the tribulation period, I believe. The tribulation period begins according to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, when he makes a covenant with Israel for a seven year period. And then also Revelation chapter 6, verse 2, the first rider, the first seal opened up in the beginning of the tribulation. The rider's riding on a white horse, he has a bow, he doesn't have an arrow. He comes conquering on the conqueror. It seems like he comes peaceably as a peacemaker because he has a bow, but he doesn't have an arrow. But eventually, this Antichrist, which we're going to talk more in detail, so you got to come back. And we're going to be talking about that period of time and talking about this one who makes a covenant with Israel. What is that covenant? Many speculate is that the Jews will be able to rebuild their temple. First temple destroyed, second temple destroyed, 70 A.D. There hasn't been a temple for 2,000 years. There is going to be a tribulation temple that will be in existence. You know that they're building that temple right now, not the building itself. But you can go to Jerusalem, and those of you who have been with us to Jerusalem, we've gone to a place called the Temple Institute. You go in there, to have all the furnishings, they have all the garments ready to go, they're training young men for sacrifice, they got the plans for the temple, all they're waiting for is to go ahead to build that temple there up on the Temple Mount area. They believe that the Dome of the Rock, you've seen pictures of Jerusalem, which is a Muslim mosque that is up there, that it has to be removed for the temple to be rebuilt, but we know that it's the most disputed 35 acres in the whole world, that Temple Mount area. And if they were to do that, then every Muslim in the world is going to come right down on top of Jerusalem. So this one is going to come and make a covenant somehow. And there's even hints, I think, in the book of Revelation that the temple will be built and then the Dome of the Rock will be next to it. So you have to keep coming. So we can look at that, but it's, it's fascinating when you read it and you look at it, it's coming just as the Lord said would happen. The Antichrist in the middle of the week, sacrifice and offering is going to come to an end as we know that it is the Antichrist that will go into that rebuilt temple. He will declare himself as God. That's the abomination of desolation. Jesus said when you see that halfway through the tribulation period he said flee because there's going to be great tribulation such as never seen before he's going to command the world to worship him and then it's going to lead to the battle armageddon and the coming of jesus christ so we'll talk more about that specifically as we get in chapter 10 11 this fourth and final vision that daniel's going to have so father we thank you so much that is here that we can talk about but lord we come and this is amazing We know that the first 69 weeks were fulfilled, that the 70th week will be fulfilled. And Lord, we know where this world is headed. But we also know that your kingdom is coming. So Lord, consider our ways. That's what we are to do. May we consider our ways in living for you and walking with you and knowing you and making you the priority of our lives. As we have so many things that go on, school, business, those things. We're in the world, but we're not to be of the world. And this world's going to end in a terrible, terrible way. This world is not our hope. It is not our fulfillment or satisfaction. It is you and belonging to you and to a kingdom that will last forever. And I want to pray, Lord, if there's anyone here or watching or listening on the radio later, you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. He is your salvation. A lot of people don't have hope today. It's one of the things we hear constantly. Jesus is your hope. He is the hope for you, for our nation, for our world. He is your salvation. Will you come to him? He died for you. He was cut off as he took that cross and walked down the narrow streets of Jerusalem to a place of execution because of you and his love for you to die for your sins. There's a sin problem. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus took your sins upon himself, died on that cross, and then he rose from the grave. And he says, come. And you can do that right now, if you've never done that. You can pray, Jesus, I come and I ask you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died for me on that cross and that you rose again in your life. And I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. Forgive me. And I thank you for this new beginning. And I thank you that I now belong to a kingdom that lasts forever. And I want to know you and walk with you all the days of my life in Jesus' name. Lord, bless everyone here as we go our way. Watching, waiting, occupying till you come. Because there's a living temple that is being built to be used of you in the days in which we're in. So bless everyone here as we go our way. In Jesus' name.